Good morning, church family. It is an honor to be with you this morning. We are continuing, and this morning we're going to be concluding our series in the book of Galatians. And this is Paul's first letter to his first church plants in his ministry. And Paul has spent lots of time educating them practically, pragmatically, and theologically on their freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's covered everything from the cross to grace to the promise, their faith, baptism, practically how that should, should influence the life and the lifestyle of Christians. And now he's going to wrap us up by, by summarizing and giving some concluding thoughts to his entire teaching. I want to turn your minds to Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The first thing Paul tells us in this text, just like he told the Galatian churches at the time of this writing, is that the Lord Jesus Christ has given them freedom to be compassionate. The Jewish law was based on customs and ideals and specific dietary requirements and celebration dates and, and circumcision. But the law of Christ is the law of love. And the law of love compels us to be compassionate. And being designed in the image of God, our, our very nature is fulfilled and compelled to demonstrate compassion in the relationships we have with others. He says, brothers and sisters, man, we've been talking about the law, we've been talking about the Torah, we've been talking about Moses, we've been talking about all this stuff, but let's get down to Christian living right here, right now. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. As I'm reading this, I have this picture in my mind of Paul having waited to get through his theology, through his demonstration in the Torah and his teaching, all of the things that add credibility to the law of Christ the law of faith rather than the law of works, which is what he been, he's been talking about this entire letter. Look, don't pursue the teachings of the Judaizers. They're trying to get you proselytized to the old way. Instead, follow the law of Christ. And now finally, we've arrived. And what is tantamount to Paul's teaching and the law of Christ? We see this over and over and over again in his writings. Tantamount to Paul's teaching is this idea of restoration. And in church, Paul would later say to the church at Corinth, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation to stick with this idea. If you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, then one of the most important things you can do in life as you live in relationship to others is gently restore those who are struggling. And this is so difficult for us to do to the degree we have emotions invested in a relationship. Trent, are you saying that if I really love somebody and they hurt me, that it's my job to gently restore that person? Yes, I am. And yes, that's Paul's teaching here. 
And some of us want to restore, but we want to do it with a sledgehammer. Yeah, come on back. Come on. No, go ahead. Come on. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some idea of what Paul's meaning here. The Greek word is katarizo, which is the word for restore. This is the same word used to describe James and John at their calling to be disciples by the Lord Jesus, what they're doing to their, their nets. They're mending their nets. In the Greek vernacular, this word would be the most common word used to describe the resetting of a broken bone, to mend or restore, to reset, katarizo, a broken bone. I want to tell you a story. There was a time in my life, there was just one time where I got in an argument with my parents. Those of you who know me know that's a big time stretch of the truth. But one time I was arguing with my parents and they made me so mad of all the array of possible behaviors I could have engaged in. What seemed best to me to do at the time is to punch a wall in our living room. So my parents and I are arguing and I'm overcome with anger and rage. Ah! And I just hops a, a, a skip step, you know. Boom! All right, now, I didn't know and still don't know much about boxing. I, I knew virtually nothing about boxing at the time. But the way you're supposed to punch is by leading with... Now, all the guys are tuned in. Every guy in this audience is locked on me right now. You're supposed to lead with your middle finger knuckle. And so you're supposed to hit square with your hand. Well, I didn't know that. So I, I throw a big right hook and that first knuckle that hits is actually my pinky knuckle and so that pinky knuckle is boom and as as fate would have it that day my pinky knuckle directly collides with a stud in the wall now we're going to talk about reaping and sowing in a little bit but i sowed a fight with the wall what i reaped in that moment was a broken bone but as a 16 year old kid it's like Boom, crack, ugh, but you just keep your teeth gritted in your eyes. And I walk down to my room, and about two hours later, I come upstairs, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I think my hand actually is broken. I can't move my fingers, and it feels numb, and it hurts terribly. And so the worst part about this is now I'm at the mercy of the people I was frustrated with. And so, but they, my mom and dad are so gracious. They, they handle it really well. They're like, come on, let's go get in the car and so we go to the doctor's office and in retrospect had I been a Christian that moment I would have been praying uh, for the smallest most feeble nurse uh, ever to have helped reset that broken bone but I was frustrated and not thinking and we go to the room and the lady that walks in could have crushed me like a bug with her index finger and thumb this was a this was a lady who had set some broken bones and had all the leverage and strength necessary to really set a large bone so she walks in and a wave of terror washed over my body and she's like well what'd you do i'm like i hit a wall blah blah and she's like oh well let me let me see your hand and so i hold my hand out and she grabs it and she starts twisting that around does that hurt? I'm like, "Ah, yeah, that hurts. So the way they reset a broken bone, at least in your hand, this is called a boxer's fracture. She goes out in the hall and she wheels in this apparatus that couldn't have been any worse looking if it had been a guillotine. She wheels it in and it's a Chinese finger trap. You know what I'm talking about? Where you put your fingers in and the harder you pull, the more snug it gets on your finger. 
And so she wheels one of these things attached to the same kind of stand that an IV bag is attached to, but it's hanging up there, and she's like, put your pinky finger in this. And I knew where this is going, and I, you know, I, I, I've never been more confronted with my masculinity in my life than that moment. So just getting my finger in there was so painful. And then she's like, let me make sure it's in there. She starts tugging down on my arm. Every tug of my arm sent excruciating pain through my arm. And then she starts messing with that again and trying to get the knuckle. It was every bit as bad as it sounds, probably even worse. Finally, and it got to the point where I was like, look, set or not, just let me out of here. Eventually they put a cast on it and, and let me go. That would be the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul intends for us to understand based on this writing. You've struggled, friend. You've walked through dark valleys and lived through some long nights. You know what it feels like to be alone or caught in sin. We've all been there. Now the Apostle Paul can finally get to what he's been waiting to get to all along. It's like, I almost get the sense, man, I wish I could write to you and not even talk about the Judaizers. I wish you could get right in there and talk about the law of love, the law of Christ, how to restore somebody gently, how to love somebody who's unlovable, how to forgive people even if they're crucifying you. And finally he gets here and he says, man, restore gently. If you had a broken bone, you'd want it to be reset very delicately and gently. That should be your approach to the people who have hurt you and grieved you most in life. And at this point, we really see more clearly the law of works, which is the law of Moses, what Judaizers were trying to proselytize the Gentile converts into following, contrasted very clearly with the law of Christ, which is more difficult. And to be quite frank and to be very direct and explicit, there are probably times where it might be easier to be circumcised than to forgive and restore somebody who has committed sin against me. And absolutely it takes the empowerment of the Holy Spirit if we are really going to live the law of the Lord Jesus Christ out. But this is no doubt why the Apostle Paul has been so absolutely committed to saying, don't go back to the old things. You're a new creation under a new law, a law of love, the law of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians restore gently. He takes that one step further and says, they also share one another's burdens. The first word in Greek he uses to describe the sharing of burdens gives us a sense of a weight that is heavy upon its bearer. And being designed in God's image, friend, means you've been designed to connect. As elemental to you as oxygen is developing and cultivating deep, authentic connections with other men and women in the body of Christ and sharing your burdens. If we get isolated, if we get alone, if we get disconnected, we're an easier target for the enemy. To the degree we're plugged in with other men and women who can encourage us and challenge us and speak to us truth and love, we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and we get to experience the law of love, the law of Christ, as its blessings are rained down upon us day to day. The next word he uses in verse... uh, Five, for each one of us should carry their own load, is a different word in Greek. They both refer to the carrying of a burden. The first one is a weight that that bears heavy on its bearer. The second one is a weight that I carry out of reverence and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This weight carries with it the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us when he said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself daily, take up your cross, carry your weight, let, let your vessel be weighed down with the burden of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow me. This is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my burden, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest to your souls. That exchange of a burden that we do with the Lord Jesus Christ when we assume his burden and give him the burden of our sin and our fallenness is the second idea Paul is talking about here. And it is this burden that should cause us to well up with a measure of pride. I am emulating the life and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am denying myself and I am carrying my burden in obedience to glorify and honor Him. I am loving those who are unlovable. I am restoring gently those who have sinned against me who are exceptionally difficult to love and to forgive. And I'm sharing the burdens with my fellow Christians and we're walking together in self-denial and self-sacrifice, trying to live out the lifestyle of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be the thing that fulfills us. That should be the thing as Christians we condition ourselves to be satisfied by. And our culture is constantly warring against us, trying to lure us away from satisfaction in Christ to being satisfied in culture and self-centeredness. The Apostle Paul would wish that we had none of that and instead that we would relinquish all and pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. We're free to be compassionate and it is in the act of compassion that we find a measure of our ultimate purpose in life. The second freedom he says in conclusion to his letter is now you're free to take action. In verse 7 he says don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. This idea of God's model economy has been something that's been central to my life and my ministry for a long time. Whatever you sow is also what you'll reap. This is God's economy. He's established it. It cannot be gone around. It is law. It is how life operates. And one truth that I want to share with you this morning is that neutrality is impossible. You're always sowing something. I want to give you a metaphor for my life that's been happening lately. We got a little lawnmower for our uh, yard, and it's a push mower, and it has a small bag, and we try to make all of these family chores big events that are really fun. And so Kirsten, my, my beautiful bride, and I will you know, wake up and we'll say, guys, guess what we get to do today? And the kids are like, what do we get to do? And they're gonna, they, they have mirror neurons in their brain which compel them to assimilate our affect. And so we're like, we get to mow the lawn. Can you guys believe it? It's so great. They're like, yeah, we get to mow. So we've really done a pretty good job about that. And it's so much so that my six-year-old son is dead set on getting to mow the yard by himself. 
So he's like, look, Dad, is there any way I could get some cash if I can mow the lawn? I'm like, bud, you can probably, but you've got to get to be able to mow the lawn to the point where I don't have to help you with it at all. Because if I'm having to stand there and help you with it, then technically it's kind of me doing the work. So once you're at the part where you, once you're at the point where you can do it yourself, then maybe we can talk about your fee for service. So every night we 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 got the mower about two weeks ago. Most nights he asks if we can go mow, and probably four nights this last week in preparation for this message, I went outside. In the evening, I started the mower, bag on, and he pushes it. And right now we're working on getting your lines straight because that's what you do when you mow. And he asked me about that, like, Dad, why do the lines have to be straight? And I thought about that, and I'm like thinking to myself, well, to be honest, you know, I really don't know why they need to be straight because technically as long as the grass gets cut, it really is irrelevant. But I'm like, no, we got to get the line straight. I'm trying to teach him right. So he's been mowing. And, and he never has had to mow when the grass has not been cut. My, my bride likes to do that. And I, I married way out of my league, a lady who loves to do yard work. And so she'll mow, and then throughout the week we give him an opportunity to, to mow. So he mowed about four times. And then when he was finished uh, about last Thursday, he comes up to me. He's like, Dad, what's this bag for on the back? And I'm like, well, that's where the grass catches. But, you know, Mom's mowed the yard, so there probably won't be a lot of grass back there. And he's like, can I see how this all works. And I'm like, sure. So I take the bag off, and I look inside that bag, and it is almost full of grass. Now, we've been mowing like probably a sixteenth of an inch off the top of that lawn all week long, multiple times a week, but that little tiny bit we mowed multiplied over enough time accumulated in a really significant way. When we opened the bag of grass and we saw all the grass that was in there, the only eyes in the universe that were bigger than mine were his. And he looks at me and he's like, Dad, did I mow all that grass? And I looked at him and I'm like, I guess you did, man. And I just felt like as I was praying and preparing for this that that was God's intent for us to understand his model economy right here in Galatians 6. Friend, every single day of your life, you're given the opportunity to sow seeds that you can't even see the significance of in that moment. Just like my son and I couldn't even sense that we were even cutting any grass. It was, it was virtually unnoticeable. But given enough time and enough effort, and enough discipline, and enough commitment, we accumulated a huge amount of success with just specific effort every single day. So my question to you this morning is, what are you sowing into the most in your life? If you're always sowing into something, if all behavior equals the sowing of seeds, and it's impossible to not behave, if you're always behaving, thus you're always sowing is my logic, then what is it you're mostly sowing into? I'll give you some examples here. I think the quintessential example for sowing into the flesh is King David. In 2 Samuel 11, David commits adultery with a lady named Bathsheba. He then plots to and successfully does kill her wife, Uriah the Hittite. Two chapters later in 2 Samuel 13, David's son Amnon has an incestuous relationship with his half-sister Tamar. And his, David's son Absalom 
kills Amnon as a result of this incestuous relationship. David sowed into his flesh through adultery and murder. He reaped the misery and destruction that sowing into your flesh always yields. Abraham sows into his flesh. God said, I'm giving you a promise. You and Sarah are going to have a child. That's the child of promise. It wasn't happening according to Abraham's timeline. He goes outside God's model. He engages in sexual activity with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. He has a son named Ishmael. This is the cause of lots of the strife and wars in the Middle East. Still to this day, Abraham sowed into his flesh. Of his flesh, he reaped misery and destruction. How about Samson? A big, burly guy, a lot like me, just handsome and debonair. He sows into his flesh and he reaps the misery and destruction and blindness and ultimately the death that's a result. On the other hand, Joshua sows into his spirit and gets to witness the Lord conquer the land of promise through him. Hezekiah sows to his spirit, trusts God, seeks the face of God, and God delivers Jerusalem from its enemies Because of Hezekiah's prayers and faithfulness. How about Peter, who sows to his spirit, sows into his spirit after he's failed time and time again, and God uses him to reap the harvest the day of Pentecost? It's a guarantee, friends. What you reap is what you sow. Maybe you've been sowing into your spirit for a long time and you've been waiting on the harvest. I promise you, based on God's word in Galatians 6, your harvest is coming. Stay steadfast and don't be weary. This is no doubt the mantra of the Apostle Paul as he's doing his earthly ministry. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to keep going because I know that someday I'll receive a harvest. What we ultimately look for in terms of our reward for our harvest is eternal life. Our our glorification at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to that day and let it encourage you. Last thing I want to mention here is that we've been set free in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, See what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision to the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Paul says three things in conclusion here that are important. The first is he's dead to the world. The world has been crucified to him and he to the world. And some of us in Christianity are still playing a little bit of a love affair with our culture and the things of this world. And if that's you this morning, that's one reason why you haven't experienced complete and total freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're not willing to do a 180 and turn away from the junk that led to the misery and destruction in your life 
that caused you to turn toward Jesus initially, but you're still teasing around with it, you're still toying around with it. Paul would say, let it go. Do an about face. Relinquish the junk in this world and violently and unapologetically commit to and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will, you'll be a new creation. God will restore and renew your mind. All the sin sickness, all the sadness, all the loneliness, all the despair, all the misery, all the depression, all the confusion. God can completely and totally heal because he can make you brand new. Who better to tell us this than the Apostle Paul who would consider himself chief among sinners? murderer, prosecutor of God's people who had completely been healed and restored and now would be at a place where he would say, I'd give everything away again if it might mean that I could gain Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul's message is to the Galatian church. Be made new. In Christ Jesus you have been set free. Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ and I live, but the new life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And that's the love Paul had always been looking for. And it's the love you've always been looking for. And it's free and it's right there if you'll just sacrifice your infatuation with this world and totally surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the symptoms of a life lived in total surrender to Jesus? Peace and mercy. And those are also the two greatest ways to evangelize the people you love and the lost, dying world that surrounds us. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know whether or not you got peace. I don't know whether or not you're living in total surrender. But I know that Paul's message to the Galatians is his message to you today. If you want to live free, live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray while we sing a verse of a song. You have the chance to respond. My hope is if you need to, you'll do that this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for our ability through you to be compassionate to people who even are almost unlovable. Thank you that we know if we'll sow into our spirit through your power that we'll reap a harvest and that's a guarantee. And thank you, God, for setting us free through the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask all these blessings over all these people and your ministry to each and every need under the sound of my voice in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.